I think it was last week that I gave a talk that was titled Refuge in the Three Aspirations and during that talk I alluded to or I referenced a transcribed, translated transcribed talk by Ajahn Chah which I said was called Learning from the Natural Mind and I later looked that up or I tried to look it up it turns out that uh, I had mistitled it, or maybe the title's been changed. Anyway, in the collected teachings of Ajahn Chah, this talk is actually called Reading the Natural Mind. And so I apologize if anybody was trying to find which talk I was referring to, and I gave the wrong name to it. I particularly remember this talk. Well, I wasn't there at Wat Pa Pong, Ajahn Chah's monastery, when the talk was given. However, I, I do remember the, when I had the tape uh, of this talk sent to me because I was living at the time in a, a very small monastery up in the north of Thailand, uh, um, in uh, Chiang Rai, Ampurpan, Chiang Rai, and um, it happened to coincide with a period in my early life as a monk where I found my grasp of Thai language was good enough and I could start to relax when I, I was listening to Thai. Previously, I was having to try and understand this word, what does it mean, that word, what does it mean. And this year, as it happened, my good friend Lumpo Tiridamo was staying at, at Wat Pa Pong with, with Lumpo Cha. And it was a year when there had been a significant intake of young monks from Bangkok. Uh, and Ajahn Chah was giving regular talks in the language of uh, central Thailand. His natural dialect is the uh, Isan dialect, which is very similar to the Laotian language. And probably most Western monks never really learnt that dialect. However, we could, often many of us could understand the central Thai language. And that rains retreat, Ajahn Chah was giving regular talks in that particular dialect, and it was great. And so, as I say, I do remember that one talk in particular partly because I could understand it better than I was used to, and I'm very grateful that uh, Ajahn Tiridamo sent it to me. Also, the topic that Ajahn Chah was talking about, I found really interesting. As I mentioned last week, he was discussing the topic of wanting and, and talking about how you know, people get caught up in wanting to not have wanting and, and not wanting to have wanting, and, and sometimes go round and round in circles and they make a problem out of wanting and and he was saying in that talk how the problem is not the wanting, the problem is the wrong understanding of wanting and so he put a whole new emphasis on the practice that what we really need to prioritize is looking at the way we relate to wanting, our understanding of wanting and it's important that we want to make the mind peaceful. It's understandable that we, we don't want to have uh, obstructions and pollutions in our awareness. That's understandable, wanting and not wanting. The issue is how we perceive, how we view wanting. If we view it accurately with what 
is classically referred to and he referred to in that talk with right understanding, then there's no problem. However, if we relate to wanting with wrong understanding, with wrong perception, with obstructed relationship, then there is a problem, big problems, a lot of confusion. And he pointed out in that talk how you can find it, as I said in the, the collected teachings of Ajahn Chah, reading the natural mind. And the, he pointed out how the, the Buddha himself and, and the, uh, the great disciples all started out in practice with a quality of wanting that caused confusion. It was wanting and not wanting mixed up with wrong understanding, wrong perception, obstructive relationship. After the arising of right understanding, or accurate, clear seeing, there wasn't any more confusion, there wasn't any more suffering. And it wasn't that wanting ceased. What was it that ceased? It was clinging. Wrong understanding, wrong perception, obstructive relationship causes us to cling to experience. This process of clinging is the cause of our suffering and and that needs to be understood. So I'm very grateful for the effort that Ajahn Chah put into um, explaining that aspect of practice. Related to this, there's a a verse in the Dhammapada which says, it's verse number 198, which says, whilst in the midst of those who are troubled to remain untroubled is happiness indeed. Whilst in the midst of those who are troubled to remain untroubled is happiness indeed. And and there's a similar verse uh, which says, whilst in the midst of those lost in hating, to remain free from hatred is happiness indeed. And as I say, to me this relates to what Ajahn Chah was talking about because it's, it's to do with the way that we perceive our experience, the way we have experience. If we were, for instance, to take those verses absolutely literally, it could sound like, it could appear quite cold-hearted, uncaring, be in the midst of those who are troubled and remain untroubled. In other words, just be detached and aloof and not be affected by it. It could sound like no empathy, just remote, not feeling. And, and Is that what the Buddha was talking about? No, it certainly wasn't. It could appear like that. It could seem that way. Or maybe it just sounds like something, or that's just too much, that's impossible, that's not relevant. Well, the Buddha didn't teach anything that's not relevant. So we could be asking ourselves, how do we, how do we appreciate the true principle encoded in these teachings? How do we appreciate the true principle that's encoded in these teachings in a practical way, in our practice? Particularly this consideration of, of empathy when you're in the midst of those who are suffering. How to be in that company without being caught up in it, without being lost in it. 
Well, again, as I was saying, I, I think this is connected to what Ajahn Shah was talking about when he was explaining the, the way we need to view wanting. Just merely wanting to not want and not wanting to want. And, and that can lead to confusion. Looking at it from the perspective of our relationship to wanting, learning to see for ourselves that clinging is the cause of the suffering, clinging is the cause of the problem with wanting, can have a very powerful effect on our approach to practice, on our approach to life, on our approach to all experience. It leads to letting go. Seeing that clinging is the cause leads to letting go. And of course, please, let's really understand here that clinging, clinging has been described here as not merely a concept. If, if all we're doing is thinking about Dhamma, thinking about Buddha's teachings, and speculating, then this probably doesn't make much sense at all. We need to do much more than just think about it. Clinging as a concept, it's useful it's useful as a concept. However, it's not the same thing as the actuality, as the dynamic, as the happening that really causes the suffering. The concept can point our attention so that we can investigate. It's like, for instance, if we were to think about breakfast. That's a concept, breakfast. We could be sitting here thinking about breakfast. Well, it's relatively speaking a useful concept because... Say, well, okay, I just need to make sure that one of the Anagarikas knows that they're on duty for making breakfast tomorrow. That's a helpful concept. If we get lost in that concept, we cling to that concept, you know, the next thing you're salivating and you're suffering because there's no tahini on toast, at least not for 12 hours. The concept is one reality. The activity is something else altogether. So with regards to this teaching on understanding the real cause of suffering with regards to wanting, clinging is the demon, clinging is the culprit. And not just the concept, we need to expand our field of awareness and feel what is being spoken about in the whole body-mind. So applying this to empathy. Is there a way we can feel what we feel in the midst of those who are suffering without being defined by that feeling. There can be cold-hearted equanimity, which is not what's being referred to at all. When the Buddha taught about equanimity, he also taught about four Brahma-viharas, kindness, compassion, empathetic joy, and equanimity. Equanimity if we pick it up in the wrong way, can lead us in the wrong direction. So presumably we're not drawn to that cold-hearted kind of equanimity. So is it possible to feel what we feel when we're in the midst of those who are really suffering, really confused, without being pulled into that suffering? Well, there's all sorts of things we could be doing to support ourselves. However, at the very core, I would suggest that this teaching is our relationship to how we feel is what matters. Are we clinging to the feeling? Or are we able to feel the feeling? Can we feel what we feel without being drawn into it?
I can recall a, I think I could say it's the first time I experienced conscious sadness, if I could call it that. This is many years ago. I was staying with a supporter of the monastery in London, I think it was, and I was watching a BBC documentary about the ending of the war in Cambodia. And I was particularly interested in it because the culture of Cambodia is very similar to the northeast of Thailand and was only just a few miles away from where we were living. And watching this documentary it was incredibly sad just to see the, 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 the horror, the absolute horror that, that took place in Cambodia for a number of years. And, and watching it and the way it was portrayed, I was aware of the, the tears streaming down my, my cheeks and just the sadness of it all. However, what was new and what I noticed, and, and, and I'm referring to here, is that, that there was also a degree of okayness at the same time as there was a sadness. And there was the awareness of that. There was the awareness that, yes, there was sadness, yes, there were tears, and one didn't have to be totally defined by that. So this is a kind of experiment that I would suggest that if we want to apply these true principles that are encoded in those Dhammapada verses there, that when we are experiencing some difficulty, some sadness, you know, some pain in life, and there's plenty of opportunities for that. Not just to try and make ourselves peaceful and think positive thoughts, and there might be a time for that. However, there's also, if we really want to cultivate compassion, the need to be able to feel sad, to look at the world, to feel disappointed, and not be pulled into it being my sadness, my disappointment. It's just sensitivity. This being, this organism, this looks at the ugliness and the wasted opportunity and it's sad. Can we feel that without being obstructed by it? And it means bringing the practice out of our heads into the bodies, really feeling what these teachers are, are referring to and uh, trying to feel what we feel isn't something we can do in our heads. It's coming into the body, what's happening in our nervous system. This clinging is a collapse within the nervous system. It's an it's a obstruction of awareness around that movement. Like, for instance, if we're talking about wanting, then clinging is this, this reaction in our nervous system and this, this collapse of awareness around this movement of wanting. If we could, for instance, just imagine using the image of, of awareness as space and then this activity taking place in space, can we remain aware and allow the activity to be what it is? Well, again, I would suggest if we're trying to do it merely by thinking, we're not going to get very far. And rather to try and feel what's being referred to and using perhaps these suggestions um, and change the way that we perceive the way we have experiences. Um. On another occasion, 
I recall a talk that Ajahn Chah gave where he was talking specifically about how we have things and he used this curious expression, have but don't have. Have but don't have. Or make having the same as not having. If we're just thinking about it, it probably doesn't make sense. However, if we look at the experiences that we have, like, for instance, a moment of, of sadness, can we feel sadness? Can we have this experience without having it, without being limited by it, without being obstructed by it? The same with positive experiences. I mean, a lot of the difficulties that we struggle with in terms of painful negative feelings is because we we uh, enjoy the positive experiences, but we enjoy them in a way whereby we tend to get lost in them. And then you hear the teachings well about letting go, and you think, well, we've got to let go of joy and happiness, as if the teacher is saying we well, don't experience joy and happiness. It's not, not, not having, but it's how we have it. It's like if you're drinking a cup of tea, you have to hold the teacup. How do we hold it? Do we hold it in a way whereby we break the handle off the teacup? Or do we just hold it in the way whereby we can lift the cup up and drink from it and then put it down again? And that's the difference between holding and clinging. That's the difference between having and having. So how to hold experience, how to have experience without turning it into suffering. Talking about these things is a, it requires a lot of subtlety because there's uh, a great deal of room for delusion to creep in. Yeah, we, can, we can be kidding ourselves yeah, and, and have an experience like, for instance, yeah, the pain of loss of friendship. There's been a misunderstanding or something's happened and feel we've lost a friendship and there's this painful feeling and we might think that oh well I'm just feeling what I'm feeling without being lost in it no clinging well maybe we are or maybe are we really that honest with ourselves are we really that honest with our whole body mind as to be able to feel that and say that or maybe being on the receiving end of some appreciation, some praise, displayed a degree of competence and, and somebody praises us and expresses appreciation and maybe we like to think, well, I'm just feeling the appreciation but I'm not getting lost and I'm not clinging to it. Well, this is where delusion can creep in. We've got to be really, really careful. And it's very easy to be kidding ourselves. And here we can appreciate the wonderful benefit of being part of a spiritual community. Spiritual companions, spiritual friends, the people who we feel they see us, they, they hear us, they, they, they kind of get us without loads of judgment. And in such company we can receive feedback and maybe this praise and appreciation that we, we thought we were just feeling or just noticing we were actually feeding on and getting all puffed up. To learn to deal with delusion, it's it's very important, very helpful to have spiritual companions. 
It's, uh, well, it's more than an asset. It's, as the Buddha said when talking about Kalyanamitta or spiritual companions, it's actually essential for the spiritual journey. In any of this talk this evening, perhaps I encourage us all to bring to heart, bring to mind the, the good fortune of having these precious Dhamma friends and, and the protection that they give us. Thank you very much this evening for your attention. Sadhu